Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Rebecca Bilbro. Rebecca is the head of data science at ICX Media and co-creator of Yellow Brick. Rebecca, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to dive into our conversation as well. This should be an interesting one. Uh, Yellow Brick is a library focused on visualization and Podcasts are not the best medium for conversations that rely heavily on visualization, but (laughs) I think we will do okay. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in data science and what led you to create Yellowbrick? Um, Well, I am a practicing data scientist. I specialize um, in applied machine learning applications and in natural language processing, usually specifically. Um, Like you said, I I currently lead the data science team at a company called ICX Media. So ICX Media is a social video intelligence company here in Washington, D.C., which is where I live. Um, And our focus is on using machine learning and natural language processing and data science um, to understand what different audiences are currently watching and what they're talking about. And we use that to sort of spot trends and, and let our clients know how basically how to make more of the kind of stuff that people are going to be excited to watch. (laughs) Um, We don't need natural language processing and machine learning to know what people are watching and talking about today. Well, that's (laughs) right. So there, yes, currently there's a lot of dialogue about Endgame and Game of Thrones, but we're not going to talk about it because (laughs) some people maybe are not um, up to speed and we don't want any spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you asked sort of how I got into data science. I always love, you know, um, I love this part of the podcast. It's so fun to hear kind of how everybody got here. It's there's a million different stories of how people landed in this field. Um, and so for me, um, I've always worked in the space between, I would say, like natural languages and formal languages. Um, so as an undergrad, I was a double major. I'm double majored in mathematics and English. And then when I went to graduate school, I decided to study communication and visualization practices in engineering. And so after I finished my PhD, I came to D.C., and that was in 2011. Um, And so this was – I I joined the federal service as a presidential management fellow. Um, And so this was during the Obama administration. They were putting a lot of um, kind of focus on, um, you know, analytics and um, kind of more data-driven strategies inside the government. And this was just around the time that data science had started really happening Um, and so my job was basically analyzing like very, very messy data. Um, but I didn't have access to a lot of tools. I mean, I think a lot of public servants can appreciate that, you know, the uh, access to tools is somewhat limited, but in particular, I had a real hard time accessing tools to allow for like wrangling and modeling unstructured data. So I was working with a lot of like logs and reports and manifests and news stories and speeches. Um, and there really just wasn't a lot of tooling out there. And so I basically, I taught myself Python and I started building my own tools. And eventually 
that was my full-time job. And I, I realized I could kind of take that and make that my full-time job. And, and I started teaching um, data science and teaching machine learning because I realized there were a lot of other people who were kind of in the same boat um, and had a lot of the same kind of needs that I, that I had encountered. Are you able to isolate what it is that prompted you to take the additional step to start building your own tools? Like we, I talked to a lot of people on the, the podcast that learn a programming language because they have some problem. Uh, but often, you know, you, you learn a programming language and the tool set that it offers you, but then building your own tools and then further kind of publishing those and, and supporting those for others. Like, what is it that even told you that you could do that? Like, what, what got you down that path? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I guess it would be, you know, one, one, one answer that I could give is that, you know, I was already in public service, you know, when I get started getting started doing this. And so I already kind of had this sense that what I was doing was for more than just me, um, that it was for some greater good. But I think that really the longer that I've been working in open source software and people who are, like you said, kind of building these tools and putting them out there into the world, I would say that open source is a lot less like public service and more like activism. Um, or maybe for a lot of people, it's more like art, you know, that people are making the change that they want to see in the world. Um, and it's the sort of wild and organic space. Um, and sounds like podcasting. Know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just fun, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of, it's fun. And once you sort of start doing it, it feels like, you know, it's, it feels like the right way to do software. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So what is yellow brick? Maybe it might help if I sort of give like a little bit of a history of like why we made yellow brick. So, um, it was. It really has to do with actually moving to trying to do data science, to moving to try to teach data science. Um, and when I started teaching, I realized like how poorly I was able to describe why I was making certain decisions, particularly around the machine learning workflow. And you know, it's like there's that you know Richard Feynman quote, like if you if you can't explain it to your students or to your kid, you don't really understand it yet. Right. So that was sort of like a moment for me. I realized. Um, I was I was thinking about this let I was talking about this problem a lot with another one of the machine learning faculty that I teach with um, who's now my creative um, partner Benjamin Bankfort um, and essentially what we realized is like what we needed was a way to answer our students questions the way we would answer them for ourselves and the way that we were answering them for ourselves was with plots um, with plotting routines and so and when I say the questions I mean like questions the students ask are things like, you know, which features do I need to build this model? Which ones should I remove? Um, you know, how do I know which model to pick? Why is that the right model? You know, why isn't my model doing a good job at uh, modeling this data? Um, and so it, that's really why we decided to start working on yellow brick. And so Ben and I, um, essentially we started this, this project, um, sort of in the beginning for our students. Um, but now it's sort of expanded out into being this tool that we see as being useful, not just for students, but for engineers and for professional data scientists um, who need a way to um, diagnose and visualize how data is being fit and transformed throughout the entire machine learning process end to end. Um, so it's a pure Python project. It's fully open source. It's licensed under the Apache 2 license. You can find all of the source on GitHub. Um, but yeah, it's a, 
I can say more about it. So it's, you know, it has a, an, an object oriented API. Um, if you are familiar with the scikit-learn API, so scikit-learn is a, a very popular uh, Python machine learning library um, that's open source. So the, the scikit-learn API has this notion of estimators and transformers um, that can either change data or model data. Um, and so our API sort of wraps that API with common visual diagnostic plotting routines that, that leverage pure matplotlib. Um, so that is kind of basically, in a nutshell, what yellow brick is. Uh, and so you reference that you, you, you're using matplotlib under the covers. What is yellow brick offering that you can't do with matplotlib? Is it kind of like pre-configured? Templates or way you know visualizations. You also mentioned in there uh, diagnostic visualizations as opposed to other types of visualizations. Can you maybe elaborate on on all that? Sure. So to the question about what we offer on top of um, Matplotlib, um, it really is about capturing those. Um, those routines that um, are kind of become best practices, I think, for people who who do machine learning kind of professionally or, or, you know, for their research, you know, so you know that you like to use residuals plots to diagnose um, certain kinds of error when you're doing regressions, or you know that you like to use confusion matrices to know, you know, which of your classes you're um, kind of failing to, to classify and so really all um, Yellow Brick does is it sort of says, okay, well, in order to do a, um, you know, residuals plot, you need like these 50 or 60 lines of custom matplotlib code, or in order to do a confusion matrix, you need these 50 or 60 custom lines of matplotlib code. And what we do is we wrap those into like a, an object. Um, and so instead of doing, you know, 50 lines of custom code each time, you just import um, the object from, uh, you know, you import the, um, the class from yellow brick and you create, you instantiate an object that, um, does, you know, executes that work for you inside an object oriented interface. And so, um, it learns from the data and then it tells you kind of what it learned using a plot. Nice. And I would really encourage folks to take a look at the gallery that you've got in the documentation. There are tons of different types of, uh, charts and graphs here, everything from feature analysis to regression visual visualizers, classification visualizers, clustering, model selection, text modeling, decision boundaries, and target visualizers. Uh, are there any particular of these tools that uh, get the most use or kind of the, the bread and butter for yellow brick users? Oh, that's a fascinating question. I Part of me kind of wishes I knew more about how people are using it. You know, one of the ways that we kind of try to keep a beat on this is just by like looking at the blog posts that people are publishing, mm -hmm. um, you know, what people are using in those posts. Um, it does seem like the regression and classification visualizers are incredibly popular. I think it's because, you know, those are two very common forms of, you know, supervised learning is very common. Um, and so um, using things like classification heat maps um, or, uh, you know, prediction error plots or residuals plots um, are very, very popular. We see those a lot in blog posts. Um, there was just a, a, a blog post that went out where um, somebody was using our stochastic neighbor embedding plot 
um, which is um, which I really like to use when I'm doing uh, document modeling, right? So when I'm trying to understand a corpus and, and look at the different kinds of documents in that corpus. Um, and so there's a, you know, there seems like people are using kind of the whole gamut. And then the other way that we sort of listen is just by looking in the issues, you know, for feature requests and, and bug reports to know um, where people are using um, um, different things and how they're using them and um, what, what they're encountering as they're trying to use these different kinds of visualizers. Are there any particular ones? Is there like a uh, kind of lesser known hero uh, among the different plots that you can well, do that? Uh, yeah, I, I would have to, you know, so I, I mentioned that I do a lot of NLP at, at my work and just kind of in general is sort of, that's my um, sweet spot in terms of what I like to do. And so as you might expect, there are, you know, a, a range of interesting text visualizers um, that you might be surprised to see um, just because they sort of, you know, they, they happen because uh, Benjamin and I, my um uh, the other core maintainer, the other co-creator, and I both do a lot of natural language processing. And so we've kind of evolved a lot of these sort of interesting different ways of thinking about text and and how what might help people to model text um, more easily. And so uh, stochastic neighbor embedding is a common one. So that's, you know, it's like T-S-N-E, T-S-N-E plots. Um, so that's one that we have. We also have um, ones that people will probably recognize from another library called NLTK. So the Natural Language Toolkit is um, kind of one of the first uh, really robust Python libraries for doing natural language processing. So we have a visualizer that does like frequency distributions of words or tokens. Um, but we also have a few things that you might not see in other libraries. So we have something called a dispersion plot. Um, and so what a dispersion plot lets you do is see the incidence of a certain word across a corpus, um, which can be really useful for knowing. It's, it's sort of like a way of doing feature analysis um, for when your features are words um, and tokens. Mm -hmm. um, there's another one called a part of speech tag visualizer. Um, this is one, so I'm sort of selfishly maybe talking about this one because it's one that I worked on recently. Um, <laughs> But I think a lot about, you know, um, what kind of document is this and how can I guess what kind of document this is without having to read every single document in my corpus. And it turns out that one really kind of easy way to guess what kind of document it is, is to just count the number of certain parts of speech. So like how many adjectives are there? How many nouns are there? Um, you know, how many verbs are there? And so our part of speech tag visualizer is a way that you can like scan over um, a corpus and look at the proportion of different types of parts of speech. And then you can compare different slices of the corpus or different classes um, from the corpus and look at how much it varies, right? Because our practices for using certain kinds of words are really, really different when we're talking about blogging and when we're talking about writing um, news articles, when we're giving speeches. And so you can see really distinct variations in the ratios of different parts of speech. Um, and can you give can some really examples of, uh, you know, different ratios and what they signal in terms of the type of document? Oh, that so that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's that kind of like, um, you know, when you're writing the news, um, you're supposed to not use any adjectives. 
Um, and so that's kind of a, an easy example, right? So if you're scanning over the text and you do a part of speech tag visualization, let's see, let's say, and your um, your proportion of adjectives is extremely low, um, there's a actually a pretty good chance that it's a news article. Um, whereas, for instance, if you have you know a lot of adjectives. Um, you know, you might be looking at something that's more akin to like poetry or music, um, like a song lyric, mm -hmm. um, because adjectives are a lot more common. Um, you know, so things kind of like that. I don't know if that um, helps to paint the picture a little bit better. It does help. I'm not able to easily come up with a lot of different classes that this would easily allow me. I, it seems like the kind of thing that uh, and maybe this is, this is like everything else, but you have, you'd have to see a lot of examples to get an intuition for kind of how this might translate to a particular class of documents. And maybe it doesn't generalize all that well. That's fair. I think, you know, so you did ask And that's about not a critique. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I, it, it's, it's very interesting that, uh, I'm intrigued that you can, learn anything from looking at this consistently yeah. and the news example is a great one i can i can definitely see that uh and i'm i'm just curious about others it's a it's a very interesting uh analysis to apply to a corpus so here's another example so i'll sort of um think of another example which is that a lot of times with students one of the things that they'll try to do is they'll try to do a regression um, you know, so let's say, you know, they have a bunch of data where each sample is a sample of concrete. And what we're trying to predict is how long the concrete is going to last given, you know, its components, you know, how much of cement is in it, how much uh, ash, how much water, et cetera, is in it. And so let's say they're trying to uh, regress this, um, uh, this, this data. Um, and what they find is that their regression scores are really, really bad. Um, and so one of the strategies that we suggest is like, well, why don't you bin the values into categories and then try to do classification? So let's say, well, you know, we'll look at all of the samples that, you know, lasted between zero and five years, all the samples that lasted between five and 10. But a lot of times when you pick, when you sort of manually pick those bins, um, you end up with really bad class imbalance problems. Mm. And class imbalance is like the surefire way to end up with you know, terrible classifiers. And so we actually have a visualizer called balance binning. Okay. Um, and what it does is it recommends bins um, when you are kind of trying to turn a regression problem that's, that's not successful into a successful classification problem. Is the idea that you would use the parts of speech visualizer in conjunction with the, the binner to allow you to classify documents based on their parts of speech distribution? Yeah, so I guess I was so for balance spinning, I was just thinking about any regression problem um, that you would want to convert into a classification problem. But I can imagine like a case where let's say we're looking at um, Yelp reviews, um, mm -hmm. and uh, let's say you know we were you know trying to regress um, a score like an exact score. Uh, for a review is really hard. So trying mm -hmm. to predict like this is exactly a 4.32 or this is like a right. 2.17 restaurant is really hard. 
But when you bin things um, by stars, like, you know, this is a one star, this is a two star, this is a three star, you can sort of get there a lot faster. So if you don't already have those bins, um, you could kind of use balanced binning to help you decide on the bins. And then you could use something like part of speech tags to, to see if the parts of speech are a good way to differentiate um, positive reviews from negative reviews, let's mm -hmm. say. Yeah, I can envision something like uh, fake reviews use more adjectives, for example, than uh, real reviews or something like that. I think that's a very good hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> or more exclamation marks. Is an exclamation mark a part of speech? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah, punctuation is is included in that. This was originally built as a, a teaching tool. Can you maybe talk through uh, some of the ways that you use it or have seen it used in real world? And we've kind of talked through a bunch of those, but I'm wondering if you can walk through uh, in maybe more depth uh, kind of a workflow or use case that you, sure. you're, you're familiar with. Sure. So I think that um, first I would sort of say I think a big part of how I think about the machine learning process is by using this, this expression, the model selection triple, which comes from a paper um, by Arun Kumar, um, which is a, actually a paper on sort of next generation databases that anticipate machine learning from the start. But he talks about the model selection triple as basically this is what the machine learning workflow sort of boils down to. You do feature analysis, you do algorithm selection, and then you do hyperparameter tuning. And you might have to do a triple, like many triples, to get to the optimal model, but it generally follows that flow. And so what you've got then is a search problem. Right. So you're searching, you have you've got this big grid of all of the possible features, all of the possible algorithms, all of the possible hyperparameters, and you're trying to find the best, you know, place in that search. Um, and so what students generally do is they just like Google examples and they kind of copy and paste. But I, you know, frequently I think people um in a um production context, right? So if you're in a, a company, you you maybe are just buying uh, machine learning as a service from somebody else, right? So you're paying some company to like a black box uh, kind of company, you give them your data, they kind of do something magical, and they pass you back a model, and, and maybe you try to deploy that. But I think that um, what I am seeing is that people are starting to become dissatisfied with those black box models. Um, they can't tune them. They don't understand them. They, you know, they don't have a lot of insight into how they work. Um, and there's, you know, ethical concerns with how is this made? Um, you know, how can we answer these questions about how this was made from our users, let's say. Um, and so what I'm seeing is that people are starting to adopt yellow brick to do steering of the model selection triple and kind of like taking that process back um, in-house so that they can do it, um, you know, in-house rather than, uh, you know, kind of um, delegating that or, or paying for that service uh, from somebody else. I'm curious, are you seeing folks that are adopting Yellowbrick as a, a path towards more explainable models or understanding the models better? It's, you were just saying that. Uh, yes. Yes. So I think that it is um, a very powerful tool for um, 
model interpretation and explainability, you know, it is not really designed for um, non-technical, you know, consumption, right? So it's not, it's not really designed to kind of produce plots that you could just drop into a business presentation and give to people who aren't already sort of familiar with the process, but they are a very good way to stimulate um, kind of more directed uh, decision-making for your data scientists. So you can, you, you know, if your data scientists are using yellow brick to do feature analysis and feature engineering model selection and, um, and hyper parameter tuning, you know, that they are doing this, that, you know, it's not a random walk, right? Like they're, they're not just, um, picking things randomly. They're doing a, you know, directed focused search. Um, they're not just using grid search, right? So they're thinking about the choices they're making. Um, and because they're thinking about the choices they're making and they have these artifacts of those choices, you can then trace back through those choices and say, this is why we ended up with these features. And this is why we ended up with these models. And you can kind of, you can tell that story with these plots that, that have been generated in the course of modeling. Um, you know, these visual artifacts can be used, they can be used to explain um, how a model is working to the internal engineering team. Um, and so that level of explainability is oftentimes a blocker to deploying models, right? Because the data scientists know how to make models, um, but they don't understand maybe very much about software engineering or, or deployment. And the software engineers understand deployment, but they don't understand kind of, you know, how to, for instance, how to test um non-deterministic uh, functions. Um, they don't understand, um, you know, how to parameterize things um, so that they will work in a production context. Um, uh, but yeah, you can use yellow brick for logging, for, for visual logging. Once you've deployed a model, um, you can use yellow brick to generate plots uh, on a regular basis to look for things like model decay. Um, you know, if all of a sudden the classifier starts to perform poorly, that will show up in the in the plots um, and the engineers can know what to look for. Um, and that can be very powerful for for explainability and interpretability. And so is visual logging and uh, this use case where you're tracking model decay is that are there specific yellow brick plots designed for that? Or are you just using yellow brick to display time series data? Um, so I, that's a good question. I, I don't know of other people who are using this in context other than Benjamin and I both use this in, you know, in our jobs. Um, and so essentially, you know, what you're just doing is you're, you're outputting, you know, just, just the way that you would output like an, an F1 score on a regular basis, let's say of your, your classifier, and maybe you compute an F1 score on some regular, you know, routine basis, and you look for a change. Um, well, instead of um, outputting just the F1 score, you could output a confusion matrix, um, or a prediction error plot is another one of our classifier evaluations, you could out output a prediction error plot, which would allow you to see not just the F1 score, which gives you the overall 
um, you know, the harmonic mean of precision and recall, but actually be able to see um, specifically which classes where the decay is happening. Um, and that is actually really helpful because, you know, oh, um, it's this, you know, this specific class is where I'm struggling to classify. Um, you know, it's not just kind of overall performance decay, it's decay in a specific way that, that I can use that information to make decisions about how to fix things. You mentioned in discussing that the third element of that model selection trip, triple the hyperparameter tuning, that one of the advantages of using something like, uh, well, this approach in general really is that you're taking a more principled approach to uh, optimizing your hyperparameters. What are some of the plots that Yellow Brick offers that uh, are there specific plots focused on hyperparameter uh, tuning or is it just, you know, tracking model performance as you're working your way through the hyperparameter space? We do have a couple that are specifically for hyperparameter tuning. And so one that is very popular is the alpha selection plot. And so, you know, you, I'm sure you know this, but um, uh, when, when you're doing regression, um, generally the problem is that you need to figure out how to execute enough smoothing um, so that your model will generalize to unseen data. Um, but there is this sort of question about how much smoothing do I need um, and generally the strategy is to grid search that, right? So you say, okay, well, smooth, um, between alpha equals, you know, 0.001 all the way to alpha equals 10. Um, mm -hmm. that's a pretty big grid search, especially if you have a lot of data, um, that grid search could be running for quite a long time. Um, and the worst part is that you don't know maybe if you've even picked the right range. Um, and if you pick the wrong range to look inside, then you never get to the optimal answer. Right. Um, and so one of the things you can do with yellow brick is use the alpha selection, um, which allows you to visualize, um, you know, what the, let's say regression score is at, you know, some number of cuts of alpha. Um, and what you're hoping to see is some point where your score, you know, goes up, um, but starts to plateau, um, you know, and, and if you don't see that, if you see kind of things hopping around, moving around a lot, or um, you can you can sometimes even see if you've picked the wrong range um, to look inside. Another example that's sort of similar but outside of regression is for when you're doing uh, centroidal clustering. So how do you pick the right K when you're doing K-means? Well, you guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there there are... There are heuristics, let's say, um, for picking the best K, but generally, I mean, people are, are mostly just guessing, right? Um, and so in the same way as with the smoothing coefficient, like you don't know uh, how many K uh, to pick. And so you can, you can grid search that. You can you know, pick all of the K from four to 400. Um, that is a very long running grid search. Um, and so instead of kind of just um, trying to throw grid search at it, um, you can use the um, elbow plots. So we have uh, silhouette scores and elbow plots, which are two uh, visualizers in yellow brick that are very useful for centroidal clustering. Um, and what a, what a silhouette plot um, does is it computes the silhouette score for each of the clusters. So, you, you know, you pick, um, okay, pick K 
k equals seven, let's say, will cluster to you know seven clusters, um, and then it will compute for you the the silhouette score for each of the clusters, which essentially is just a way of saying like how dense is this cluster and how far away is it from other clusters. Um, and you want them to be as dense and as far away from others as possible, um, because that's what you know. That's what that's what centroidal clustering is sort of for. Um, and uh, and so you can use that to look for a single K. But because you can use that for a single K, you can actually scale that up um, so that when you are uh, when you place like a, a range of K to look in, you can compute the average silhouette score across all of the clusters at each number of clusters. And what you hope to see in your plot is an elbow. So some point where you reach a peak, um, a peak score. Um, and if you get to like a peak score for a certain number of clusters where your average silhouette score for all the clusters is really high, you know, you've got to the, the best, um, K, but you might also see something where there's no elbow and it's kind of jumping all around. Um, and usually when I see that, it tells me that centroidal clustering is not the best algorithm. It's not the best model family. And I need to try to pick a different clustering methods, like maybe something that's hierarchical, let's say. Um, so those are two um, hyperparameter tuning visualizers that, um, that I use regularly that I think are very popular. I'm curious about the community that uses yellow brick first of all how long has yellow brick been out and what have you seen over time um well so it's been open source for i think it's it's going to be three years this month or maybe next month um so in that time we have accumulated almost i think we have 75 contributors now um, we have about 2,000 stars on GitHub, um, and you know it looks like we have about 5,000 downloads a month, um, unique downloads a month via the Python package index, PyPy. Wow. Um, so it looks like we are kind of we have reached a point where it is starting to become you know part of just the routine um, way that people do. Uh, machine learning diagnostics. Um, you know, it's hard to tell what the breakdown is between, you know, professional data scientists and students. Um, but based on kind of what we're, you know, the feedback that we're getting um, and kind of what we're seeing, it looks like this is something that is being used across a lot of different communities. Um, and we recently became a NumFocus affiliated project. Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with NumFocus. It's, um, you know, it's a kind of open source um, umbrella organization that that helps promote open source projects and um, particularly a lot of the ones that um, are very popular like um, SciPy and Matplotlib and Scikit-learn um, mm -hmm. and so we recently became affiliated with NumFocus which is really nice um, it helps us sort of um, be kind of more hooked into the conversation um, and, and they help us sort of spread the word um, we work really hard to to you know, reach out to people. We give a lot of talks, you know, we go to PyCon and, you know, PyData events um, all over the country. Even, you know, we've been to London, we've given talks in Argentina. Um, so we really are doing our best to try to get this out to as broad an audience as we can. Um, because I think that that, like the diversity of usage has really made Yellow Brick very interesting. So, you know, it's not just things for regression, 
Um, it's not just things for classification. It's not just things for text, you know, and that's really because we have users who are engaging in this conversation who are doing all different kinds of things. Um, and it's really made the library much richer over time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, when was the first, uh, feature that, you know, major feature or a different type of graph that went into yellow brick that, uh, you or Benjamin didn't personally build? Oh, wow. That's that, a has good been question. a long time. Um, it has been a long time. Um, you know, one of, uh, I mentioned the, uh, dispersion plots that was added by one of our contributors, Larry, um, so Larry Gray is one of our uh, core contributors, and he does a lot of text analysis too. And so he added the dispersion plot. We have um, a joint plot visualizer, which is for doing pairwise feature analysis, that was added by um, Prima, um, who is another one of our contributors. We have um, we have a a very kind of special approach to doing unit tests. Um, you can kind of imagine that when you're trying to do unit tests for visualizations, um, it gets a little bit hairy because you have to <laughs> compare, you know, different plots and see if they're close enough. Um, mm -hmm. But one of our uh, core contributors, Nathan, um, you know, essentially he found kind of a clever way of doing this that we've adopted. Um, that was a really important contribution. Um, we have two other uh, contributors, Kristen and Adam, who have helped a lot with um, our documentation and getting it basically to a form where, you know, people really enjoy reading the documentation and, and know where to find things because um, things are kind of easy, easily searchable and, and make sense. Can you uh, can you give a quick summary of the approach to unit testing? Yes. So the trick is that you have to find a way to do visual comparisons. And so what we do is the library um, inside the test directory, we have baseline images. And every time we add a new visualizer or at our change of visualizer, um, we, we update those baseline images. And those baseline images tell you, you know, the, the tests create images and the baseline images are what we compare them to. And so when the, test, uh, when the tests run either on your machine or in CI on GitHub, um, they are building these plots. They're comparing them to the baseline images that are part of the repository repository and they're looking at the diffs between the two. So, you know, it's really just like black and white. Like if you actually look at the diffs, it's just black and white and you're hoping mm -hmm. that, you know, you won't see any diff at all. Um, but what actually happens in practice is that different operating systems have slight variations in how they execute fonts or, or colors, let's say, or, um, you know, translucency. And so you have to engineer, um, you have to use like um, PyTest parameterize or, you know, other tricks with PyTest um, to say, okay, well, if it's within this range of similarity, we'll call it the Got same, it. close enough. Okay. <laughs> um, Interesting. So yeah, it, it's a little bit tricky, but um, it's a pretty cool trick. It, actually, if anybody out there is doing any kind of visual library stuff um, and, and having trouble with, with tests, I would strongly suggest looking at yellow brick. I don't really think that there's anything else out there um, uh, like this. So it's, it can be a really good model for people who are having similar kinds of challenges. Awesome. 
Awesome. Is that, is that uh, have you put that visual compare into yellow brick or is it a separate thing? So it, it's in there in the sense that it's part of our test suite. So like if you go into the test directory, um, yeah, it's, so it's all in there. And we have actually a readme inside the test directory that even just kind of goes pretty in-depth into like what visual comparison mm-hmm. means and how it works. Um, so if you're curious about that, you can dig in there. Uh, but yeah, so that, that is part of the, the, the source code. Well, that's awesome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you are up to and about Yellowbrick. Sounds like a really awesome library. Thanks so much. Thanks. And yeah, everybody keep an eye out. Version 1.0 is going to be coming out probably in the next month. So there's a lot of new stuff coming out with version 1.0. I think people are going to be pretty excited to see it. Oh, that's a huge milestone. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We're very excited. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.